0: Do turn with me again this morning to the book of Acts as we continue in our series there. We're taking these last week and this week to look at the story of Stephen. And we began that last week and particularly looked at what led up to his sermon and looked at his sermon. And today we're going to consider particularly his his death. And as a response to his sermon and uh, other circumstances around it. So I'm going to read um, from chapter 6 again uh, what, what led up to his, his, his arrest and, and his sermon. Then we'll skip over the sermon again and read uh, what happens afterwards from chapter 7 into chapter 8. So beginning with chapter 6, verse 8, hear God's holy and word this morning. Where it says, "And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men, from what was called the synagogue with the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They secretly induced men to say, "We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God." And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For We have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who are sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. And then Stephen's given opportunity to speech, speak and, and does, and we'll pick up with the very end of his sermon, in fact, in chapter 7, where he lays his, this charge, verse 51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become." You who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and covered their ears, and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. We'll end our reading there this morning. Well, the Christian believes that God is sovereign. And works all things together for good. But in reading the stories of Acts as we've been doing, um, that that faith does not keep us from puzzling even painfully about how God's sovereignty and how his care uh, over his people works. How it works out. For instance, why does God rescue the apostles from prison and then not rescue them from, from brutal flogging hours later? Why is Paul, as, as we'll come to later, why is Paul allowed uh, years of fruitful ministry in Ephesus among the believers there? But when he goes to Thessalonica, he's chased out after a couple weeks and the church suffers. Uh, why is it that Paul, God, through Paul in chapter 9, raises Dorcas from the dead? And yet here, Stephen is left to die. We can look at our own lives and ask similar questions, and so we must confess also with Paul, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. Uh, We can't understand all of his ways. We can be sure, though, that when God allows faithful people to suffer hard, even tragic things, that he's a God who loves us with an equally inscrutable love. Uh, incomprehensible love. He humiliated himself and took on human flesh. He suffered with us in this life, suffered for us uh, in our place and showed us his love. And so what I want you to see this morning is even here in Stephen's death, which could be interpreted by an outside observer as an abandonment of God, I want you to see how powerfully Jesus is with his servant, Stephen. Stephen. Uh, and is caring for Stephen and and for his church, uh, even as he asks Stephen to share in his sufferings here. Uh, One of Jesus' most precious promises is, lo, I am with you always. And so my hope and encouragement this morning is that you'd be encouraged in that promise, that reality, that you'd embrace that truth more, um, and would see it powerfully demonstrated in Stephen's uh, faithful witness and death here. So I want to look at four ways that we see Jesus with and caring for Stephen and his church this morning. So the first uh, is Jesus granting him eyes of faith, eyes of faith. Stephen uh, has preached, as we said, he's uh, been charged with being against Moses and God's law and against the temple, and Stephen has answered those charges well by showing great uh, love and respect for uh, all of God's uh, story of redemption, including Moses and the temple and everything. But he's also, as we read this morning, charged these Jews with themselves, um, rejecting God and his law and his son. So in verse 54, Sanhedrin, the crowd, they're, they're livid. Uh, they're, they're on the brink of rushing him to his death. And in verse 55, we're told that being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What a a powerful, beautiful vision Stephen was given here uh, just before he died. Um, It says he saw the Son of Man. That's uh, not something uh, people other than Jesus typically call Jesus in the New Testament. It's Jesus' favorite name for himself. And it looks back to Daniel 7, Daniel's vision. It says of one like a son of man who comes to the throne of God and he's given a kingdom. Uh, over the whole world, and and that lasts forever. And so Jesus uses this title to point to himself as uh, a human king who was to come, a Davidic king, but also one who's divine, who would rule forever uh, over the whole earth. Um, And this this is the language the New Testament uses over and over again uh, from here in our story of Stephen. uh, Jesus at the right hand of God. The New Testament uses that over and over again to speak of Jesus' reign. Uh, But there's something unique just here uh, in in chapter 7 of Acts um, in in how this is said, and I want you to see that. I want you to listen first to uh, a number of other examples of this language about Jesus' reign, uh, and, and then we'll think about what's different here. So in Luke 22, Jesus says, From now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. There's one example, Ephesians 1. Paul says, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Colossians 3, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Uh, Hebrews 1, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, Hebrews 8, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne. And there are several others in Hebrew that I'll, I'll, Hebrews that I'll skip over. Revelation 3, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That's more, more verses than I'd usually read strung together, but I want you to hear that universal consistency how Jesus is always described in the New Testament at the throne of God. Do you see the difference? He's always he's seated at the right hand of God, except here. He's standing. Uh, Stephen sees him standing, and I'm convinced there must be a significance to that—that uh, that unique statement here—and that it's for Stephen's encouragement. Um, I don't think we can be certain the significance exactly um, why Jesus is standing at, at the right hand of God here only, uh, but I'm going to share two possibilities, two possible ways. Uh, I think good, uh, probable ways to understand this. First. We just note that the emphasis in many of these passages about Jesus at the right hand of the Father is on his authority, that he's there as judge. And Stephen here in this scene is being judged wrongly, right? He's about to die for his faithful witness, but he's given a glimpse of the judge who's standing, as it were, in solidarity with his brother Stephen. Daryl Bach, in his commentary, says Jesus is judge, and here he stands as Stephen's advocate and witness. And I think that's very possibly what's what's in view here. Jesus, although he allows this this tragic thing to happen for his purposes, he stands to signify that he is sovereign, that he is overruling. Uh, Even though there's a judgment Uh, humanly speaking, temporally against Stephen. He stands, in a sense, as a witness for Stephen. Uh, Stephen has been faithful. Stephen belongs to him, uh, no matter the judgment of others. And and so what a a powerful scene uh, this is. And I want you to think about it in in connection uh, with you, your relationship to this king, Jesus. No matter what others do to you or what others say about you, no matter how they point out your actual failings, your actual sins. Uh, If you're in Christ, Jesus stands as your judge. He stands as your witness to vindicate you, so that you will hear the words that he heard from God the Father. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. Uh, That's who you are with Jesus as your advocate. Secondly, the second way perhaps to understand why Jesus alone here is standing uh, it, it, as I was thinking about this, it brought to mind our, our Saturday morning men's study. The last two weeks, we've been talking about the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, and the way in that parable, as many have pointed out, that the father uh, takes on a, a less than dignified posture. Uh, he, he humiliates himself in a number of ways, particularly running out to his son when the prodigal son returns, something that an older, dignified man like him in that day and that culture would never do. He would not run. Certainly wouldn't run out and embrace his his uh, son who hated him and abandoned him. He wouldn't, you know, gather up his robes and his robes and expose his legs to everybody and run out and do this. Well, here Jesus uh, again in in terms of how he's described in his reign, Jesus is always described as seated at the right hand of God. That's that's the dignified posture of a king, of a judge. But here in the moment of Stephen's most desperate need, uh, perhaps we're to see that Jesus cannot be mistaken here as as some kind of a distant or stoic monarch seated on the throne, but he's standing, he's moving towards his precious brother Stephen to receive him into heaven. Uh, Jesus, the compassionate king who just months before himself, literally in his body, Experienced flogging and beating and the excruciating death of crucifixion here rises to meet Stephen rises to receive Stephen uh, into heaven, into everlasting life uh, even as he's being beaten to death I think it's fair to see both of these things all of the above and Jesus rising from his throne as the crowd rushes in on Stephen uh, rising, uh, overruling as judge uh, and rising to receive Stephen uh, into eternal life. And that, that same Jesus waits for you. And, and think again how Jesus graciously grants Stephen the eyes of faith here to see that. Not just figuratively, I think, through faith. But I think Stephen's really seeing something here. It reminds us of, of Elisha's terrified servant uh, in, in the Old Testament. Who God... Peels back the curtain on, on the spiritual dimension, if you will, and he's able to see the armies of heaven uh, surrounding him, uh, God with him to protect him. And in a real sense, your eyes of faith can see, in the sense of, of knowing and really believing, having full conviction, the reality of, of Jesus' reign for you. Secondly, I want you to see in this passage Jesus with Stephen and granting him peace. Uh, granting him a, a calm confidence in this scene. Um, notice it's, it's Stephen then, in verse 56, saying what he sees. Verse 55, Luke tells us what he sees. Verse 56, Luke sa- Stephen says aloud what he sees, that Jesus is reigning in heaven. And this is the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back that causes the, the crowd to rush him. Uh, they understand what he's saying about Jesus reigning as God here, it's very, very closely parallel to what Jesus experiences. Uh, Jesus and his uh, trials and questioning and so on. The, the thing that, that decided it was when Jesus said, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. And it's, that when, it's at that point when the, the high priest says, that's it, we've heard enough. All right, we don't need to hear anymore. And so the crowd rushes on Stephen, verse 58. They drag him out of the city uh, they begin stoning him. It's not something we should read over lightly. It should make our our stomachs turn. Um, it's a very personal, brutal way to kill someone. A very physically active way to kill someone. Everyone's got to take off their outer garments, and so they lay them at the feet of this guy named Saul. As they go on beating his head and his body with rocks, Stephen says two things. Verse 59. He prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I don't think we should read that prayer as any kind of an uncertain hope, as as a sort of wishful prayer. It's essentially the same thing that Jesus prayed on the cross. It reflects an, an absolute confidence that Jesus is with him, is receiving him. Jesus prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus was quoting from Psalm 31, that we'll sing a little bit later this morning, Psalm 31, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. That's Stephen's confidence. Even as he's dying, he's not despairing here. He's not shaking his fist at God. Incredibly, he doesn't see his death here as an abandonment by God, as a failure of the ministry that God gave him. But he understands that Jesus, as the Savior King who himself had died unjustly and yet had experience the faithfulness of the Father, that Jesus is with him. Jesus is about to receive him uh, into eternal life. That's the first thing he says. And then in verse 60, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He then turns to his murderers. He doesn't even shake his fist at them or curse them. He prays for them. Again, much like Jesus did on the cross. And we might ask, would it have been wrong for Stephen in that moment to pray for justice? Lord, see this injustice. Put an end to this. You know, bring justice against these men. I, I, protect your church. I don't think those prayers would have been wrong at all. But what can we say about Stephen? He, he seems to be so filled with appreciation for God's grace. So filled with Jesus' love. So confident that Jesus reigns. That he's a forgiving Savior. He's a, a saving King that he can pray for them at the same moment they're smashing his body with rocks. I think this whole scene is a powerful illustration of what Paul will later call the peace that passes understanding. And it's incredible to think in the fact that Paul is standing there watching this, listening to Stephen. Maybe he had this scene on his mind when he wrote Philippians 4. Uh, Kistemacher, in his commentary, describes this, Stephen saying he appears to be on an island of serenity, and in his absolute trust of the Lord Jesus as he dies. Uh, I came across a a sad contrast to that in reading recently about uh, Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa of of, uh, remarkable ministry to the poorest of the poor uh, in India, Uh, by all accounts, for many, many years, Uh, made a saint by the Roman Catholic Church when she died 25-plus years ago. Um, But a little while after that, a book came out about her life and her letters, Uh, many private letters collected that shocked the world uh, in in revealing her lack of faith, or really, for most of her life, a total lack of of a sense of God's presence with her. One good summary, Time Magazine ran a long article on it a couple decades ago. It says, the letters reveal that for the last last nearly half century of her life, she felt no presence of God whatsoever. And they give several examples of letters and writing to one priest that she did for a long time. She took to referring to Jesus in those private letters simply as the absent one, the one who is not with me. I don't presume to know her heart or where she stood with God at the end of her life, but there's much that is a sad contrast there to the, the peace and the assurance that Stephen has incredibly in this scene here. And again, my point is not that Stephen wasn't a sinner or that Stephen never had doubts. My, my point is not that if you struggle more than Stephen seems to in this brief description that your, your faith is somehow failing My point is focused on the gift of God, the the evident, powerful presence of Jesus and the gift of God's spirit that that gave Stephen a real living faith that Jesus was with him, was for him, that his promises were true. And that's reflected in his calm confidence here, that that reflects the the peace that Jesus had on the cross in, in a sense at the very end, committing his spirit to God. This is the Jesus who is with you. A third way I want you to see Jesus with Stephen this morning is in grace and power in the Holy Spirit. I want to focus on a, a, two verses, one at the beginning, one toward the end of what we read, that describes Stephen here. Chapter 6, verse 8 says, And Stephen, full of grace and power. And then chapter 7, verse 55 describes him as full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace and power. I want you to ask with me, what do those statements mean? What what can they mean? How is Stephen full of power and the Holy Spirit and grace? And I want to suggest a couple of ways that we see that worked out in this passage. Uh, First, is he's, he's a filled with the Holy Spirit to, to answer his accusers, to answer this angry mob, to preach Christ. And I've noted a number of times already in our study of Acts, and we'll continue to see this, that the filling of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is for what? It's to speak about Christ, virtually every time. It's, it's to boldly speak about Christ. Um, in six, chapter 6, verse 10, we're told they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They, they had no answer. And this is, again, a fulfillment of Jesus' promise to his disciples. In Luke 21, he said, they're going to arrest you. They're going to persecute you. Um, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. And, and he says, don't worry ahead of time what you'll say. He says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And, and that's what we see Stephen equipped for here. God's with him. He's equipping him. He, he suddenly gets an impromptu forced occasion to preach, as we studied last week, and, and he does. He, he preaches a wonderful, purposeful sermon as the Holy Spirit guides him. So there's, there's an equipping there, but I want to focus a bit more on another answer to our question. Uh, looking again at chapter 6, verse 8, where it says, Stephen, full of grace and power, That's how he's described, and yet minutes later we find him in total weakness, right? Outnumbered, helpless, ultimately laying on the ground in his blood, dead. So grace and power, what kind of grace and power is that? Seriously. Before we answer that, I think it's necessary we again recognize that there are some who, who claim the name Christian, their, their focus in terms of the power of God for the Christian is that it is to get you good material things in this life always. Right? It's, it is to help you live your best life now, as one famous book puts it. God has given you power to be healed or to be successful, to never be sad. God wants you to prosper. That's God's will for you. That's what his power is for, supposedly. But look at Stephen. I mean, pic- picture this scene in your mind. Stephen is laying there on the ground. What do we say about him? He-, he is totally unhealthy, totally unsuccessful, totally not prosperous, not happy, definitely not living his best life now. I think there's nothing that better summarizes what it actually means. What we should look for in, in terms of Stephen's being full of grace and full of power. In Colossians 1, where Paul tells the Colossians how he's praying for them. He's praying for them for power from the Holy Spirit. He says, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might. For what? For what? Paul says, for endurance and patience with joy. They're evidently really suffering, the Colossians. They need endurance. They need patience. They need joy. Paul doesn't pray for strength to escape these things. He prays for strength according to the might of God the Father, that they would endure, that they would have patience. And Paul seems frequently to have prayed that his Friends would have power and strength. Ephesians chapter 3, he tells the Ephesians how he's praying for them. He says, I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that what? So you'd have ecstatic experiences or experience miracles or escape your hardships? No, Paul says so that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. So that you would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's the the power that Stephen is given here. That's the grace in the Holy Spirit to endure, to see and to know that Jesus stood at God's right hand to vindicate him. To receive him into glory that God loved him eternally and fully. I think that's clearly what Stephen received, the knowledge that his judge would set all things right. Again, this is what some modern Christianish spin-off traditions get so wrong about what, what sort of grace and power the Holy Spirit gives to his people today. Uh, biblically, our focus in terms of the presence and the working of the Holy Spirit and the power of God is not to get rid of our trials... To get healed or wealthy or success, but to be faithful through them. That's what's promised. That's what's evidenced. Uh, Paul never in, in in writing all of his letters never sounds like a preacher saying, I, I know you're all suffering, but you know what? God has given you power. You can you can have it if you'll just use it. You can get healthy, you can be successful. This is God's will for you. Never once. Does Paul say that over and over and over? He prays they would be strengthened for faithfulness, strengthened for endurance, strengthened for love, strengthened for joy through very hard things. One more example from Paul we could give many. Philippians 4, 13, very famous verse. I can do all things. That's quite a way for a statement to begin. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says. Well, what kind of things, Paul? You know, Paul couldn't even heal himself. He writes in the New Testament, he had this ailment that uh, wouldn't go away. Paul couldn't even get himself out of prison. No power for that. What was the strength and the power that Paul testifies to for himself for? Of course, Philippians 4 is for contentment. Contentment when things are going well and contentment in the hardest circumstances, he says, which for Paul means starving and shipwreck and beatings and stonings and imprisonment contentment through these things not escape brothers and sisters Stephen's story shows that God has something so much greater than magic tricks to make your life better right? Christ's power through his spirit is for endurance in the faith far beyond what you are able in yourself to endure beyond what you are sufficient for. And it enables Stephen, that was most powerful here again, to pray for his murderers. Uh, that's, that's the power of the Spirit in him. And fourthly, uh, we see Jesus with Stephen here working great reversals. Uh, we can never see fully the sovereign plan of God, especially in tragedy, but we get some, some awesome glimpses here of God working all things together for his glory. Uh, and, and the good of his church and building his kingdom. So I want you to see that in two ways specifically. Look at chapter 8. Um, it begins, again, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Uh, and then verse 3, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Uh, here's this wicked man, Saul. We've already read these standing approving to Stephen's death, smiling, cheering them on, however he's doing that. And he goes on to lead persecution against the church, uh, breaking into homes, dragging out families to, to prison, to death. Uh, Jesus, of course, had every ability, every right to strike Paul dead in the midst of this, to put an end to it, to judge him, to protect his church in that way. And we have to, of course, wait a few chapters to read about it. But Jesus, King Jesus, does conquer Paul, or conquer Saul, who becomes Paul. He conquers him by his grace, right? He conquers his heart, and he becomes Paul. Yet in our our story here so far, Saul Saul is the strong one, right? He's the one with power, outwardly in this scene. But God, who uses the weak to shame the strongest. Saul, Paul, would write later, dramatically reverses this. Paul would be the one who would write later, When I am weak, then I am strong. And many have pointed out this is a a direct and incredible answer to Stephen's prayer there as he's dying. Lord, don't hold this against them. Uh, And it's been an incredibly powerful blessing to the church for 2,000 years now. That's the first reversal. The other one I want you to see. Uh, consider again the, this great persecution that rose against the whole church. Verse 1 again says a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Uh, Saul and others are trying their best to stomp out the power and the influence of Jesus, King Jesus, in Jerusalem. And it seems like they have some success. People are suffering. They leave their homes. They abandon Jerusalem and they. They flee, all these Christians. But, of course, it had the opposite effect. And verse 4 tells us, Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. As Tertullian that famously said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's a seed, anyways. Uh, God uses the witness and the martyrdom of Stephen and the res- resulting persecution here to spread the seed of his gospel uh, even farther and more powerfully. Uh, King Jesus continues to offer the gospel even more widely through the love and the weakness and the witness of his people. Uh, and so here's my final encouragement to you, that God brings great reversals. He will ultimately set things right. And we, we take part in that now. We hope for those things in this life. We pray to that end. We work to that end. We, we pray the Holy Spirit would change hearts would, would uh, elevate people who, who serve King Jesus, righteous people. We, we pray that people who are opposed to King Jesus, abusive, and so on, would be uh, removed from advantage and influence and so on. We pray for the gospel to work out these reversals in this life. But to the degree that God does not do that in this life, in many ways we don't see that. We also know it is the ultimate end. We know this illustrates that Jesus ultimately will set all things right. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we uh, thank you for your word again this morning, your holy and perfect word that gives us light. Lord, we pray that you would give us your spirit and your power uh, to know that you are with us. Uh, Lord, give us the conviction and the peace that Stephen had here that reflected the conviction and the peace of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Um, Lord, help us to... Uh, show and to share that conviction that you are with us uh, by your spirit with others Uh, we pray for your blessing in this uh, in the name of christ and for his sake amen